welcome to the More Than Music podcast with your hosts Thibaut Duchesne and Chris Snellgrove. In each episode, we will discuss what sparked our guests' passion and what continues to motivate them to live a dedicated life to the arts. The often overlooked reality is that genuinely dedicating oneself to one's art is not all about the euphoric moments of creation and expression. We hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. Welcome to episode two of the More Than Music podcast. Our guest today is Christian Walker. He's a Memphis-based actor, filmmaker, producer, set builder, host of his own podcast with another filmmaker, Jared B. Kalen, called Tourer Stories, a myriad of other things, and he is a fantastic musician in his own right, which is how T1 and I first met him in the 90s with his punk band Pez. He has released records on such notable labels as BYO, toured around the world, written, directed, and acted in movies that they they themselves have toured the film festival circuit and won awards. He still plays in Pez and writes music for a potential solo project, as well as tirelessly works in the film industry. He is passionate about creativity in whatever form it manifests itself. In today's podcast, we'll be talking to him about his life with a guitar, a camera, a script, a tool, and how he wields all of them to the best of his abilities. Wow, you did some research. Oh, you don't even know, Holmes. <laughs> so, Tivo, you want to introduce the premise of the show? Well, I think you uh, you did a beautiful job to introduce the premise of the show. So, uh, the show is really kind of, you know, the story behind everything that you do in terms of this creative life. And uh, I think for a lot of people, there's this difficult choice. Am I going to follow the path of the creative life and do my own life or am I just, you know, get a job and just, you know, bury down. Uh, and, uh, I think, uh, the podcast is really looking at, you know, what brought you to the life that you're living now and what sacrifices you had to pay to do what you're doing now or what you did in the past that brought you to where you are now. So it's really this kind of reflection of, how you got to where you are and uh, what is important to you. What does that sound like to you, Chris? Yeah. Um, okay. Where do I start? Well, here we'll start. We'll start. I'll ask you the first question. How oh, okay. old are you? I'm 43. You're 43. All right. So we're all around the same age. You're a little younger than us, but I looked through your IMDb and I mean, just for clarification, I know you personally, you're a very good friend of mine, but, I wanted to do a thorough like research job on you so that I didn't want to miss anything, you know? Mm-hmm. And I found out a bunch of really interesting stuff about you. You started acting at the age of seven. Yeah. I started doing a uh, little, little theater stuff, you know, like um, not, uh, not, a, you know, like school plays and children's theater and things like that. Okay. But then you were in a film at the age of 12 called runaway. Now, is this the Tom Selleck movie? No, this was a little. Um, it was actually made as a, um, a a university students. It was sort of his thesis film, oh. and I was in um, children's theater. I was in a play at the time, and they, um, you know, had a had a post on the on the board on the bulletin board. You know that there were uh, auditions for a film, and I uh, and I went and auditioned, and I and I got the role, and it was. Um, it was just a short film about me, um, you know, getting in a fight with my parents and I run away from home and a guy uh, picks me up on the street and he takes me to his apartment and he gets me hooked on drugs 
And then a few weeks, yeah, a few weeks later, he, uh, he takes me to a bar and he sells me to a guy for the night. And then, uh, you know, I, uh, (laughs) spoiler alert, I I get away at the end. Um, and then, you know, end up going back to my family and it's like a tearful reunion. And I'm, I, I learned, I learned the streets and I, and I realized not to, that I should stay home. So how did you get at such a young age get so involved in the arts? Um, You know, it really wasn't, it was like, um, I did a little bit at at like seven, I I did a little bit of this like theater stuff, you know, like with school and and whatever. But it wasn't until I really, um, I was always interested in it. I was always interested in acting. Um, and then I, when I was like 11, I went to this uh, theater conservatory and um, I was already like into punk rock and I was already like this weird kid. I went to a, um, a private Catholic school where, you know, the jocks were the cool kids already at, at this like young age, you know, like right before junior high. And I was just like this real like outcast. And then, um, I remember when I started going to theater when I was like 11 and 12, suddenly I go, oh, here's where all the weirdos are. Like, these are my people. Like, finally, you know, like, yeah. hey, there's like, you know, queer people and people of color here and like people who don't feel like they fit in. And, and you know, and I was like, oh, this is this is my tribe here, you know. Um, so I just really it, I, it was a really great escape from. Um, you know, the life of, of this, you know, this um, private Catholic school that I went to with a bunch of like, you know, you know, it was like rich kids from rich families, like super privileged people. And um, everybody was mean and gross and terrible. So uh, I really wanted that escape from that, that world, you know, and I found it in, in theater and then in film and then in punk rock. Well, that actually brings me to my next question, because again, according to your IMDb, it says that you took time off from acting to play music. Now, my question is, was this something intentional? Like you chose to do it as a different avenue for your creativity or did kind of like the acting gigs just kind of dry up? And how old were you when this happened? Um, I started my first band at 15. So, um, you know, I was doing theater, you know, I did my, that first little film at 12 and then, um, you know, I was doing theater up until around the time that I, um, started my first band and it just sort of took that, um, you know, that creative, um, you know, filled the hole that I was, that I was looking for. And that, um, I honestly, like I came to music as a writer, like I was my first band, I was the lead singer and I was not a great singer, but I liked to write lyrics. I was a writer. So I, I was always writing poetry and everything. And that sort of like allowed me to use my skills as a writer. And so that's why I, um, that's really how I got into um, playing music. And then, you know, I, I learned, I picked up an instrument later on and learned to play an instrument. Um, so yeah, it just music kind of took over because it allowed me to be, to have more input and, you know, and to create my own sort of thing. Whereas if mm-hmm. I was in a play or a film, um, you know, I'm just reading the lines that I'm given. Fair enough. So if, if we were to go back 
Because it sounds like you had this artistic urge from a very, very young age. Did it come from your parents? I mean, how were you brought into, you know, this kind of, I'm different from, let's say, the status quo of the Christian school and the jocks and I want to do acting. Uh, um, you know, I, I wonder if it's, um, if it was all about the escape because I grew up in a house uh, my parents hated each other from the the as far as I can remember and I don't remember any affection but seeing any affection between adults as you know growing up I don't I don't remember seeing any respect between adults you know when my my dad was like a traveling um, businessman. He was only home every other weekend. And then when he was, he was mean and drunk and abusive and terrible. And so I remember fighting and yelling and screaming and crying and all that. And so I feel like, um, you know, as an escape, I just used to just imagine, I just used to play films in my head and get lost in them and imagine these scenarios in my head and write stories in my head. And so my, my parents weren't um, particularly artistic. So um, although my mom did, you know, when I, when I started to say, well, you know, I want to get into theater, my mom really, you know, helped me out and, and, you know, she drove me to my plays and really, you know, thought that was a good thing. Um, but yeah, they weren't particularly artistic. And um, so I think I, I just developed it as an escape from that life. Oh, it's pretty cool. powerful when you think about it, you know, how a defense from all, you know, the craziness and the abuse, just so you started imagining a new life, how you could act into a new life and pretend to be and enter into new worlds. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it was, it was pretty tough. Um, you know, of course, of course, I was like super troubled and, uh, you know, my parents would like locked me up in psychiatric hospitals several times and, and things like that. And so, um, you know, that, that escape and that, and, and then also the, the, um, you know, the camaraderie of it, um, in both, I mean, as you guys know, like playing in bands and when you find the punk rock scene and you're like, Oh, here's, here's my other tribe. And, and, Absolutely. you know, it's a bunch of like screwed up kids who adopt each other as family because they all have, I mean, you know, how many punk rockers do you know with like good home lives? You know, it's very rare. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was both you know both those both those places the film world the the theater world and the and the world of punk rock were all these just families that you know we we just adopted each other so you know finally I I had a place I totally understand that one hundred percent now did your parents end up getting divorced or just they suffered through the whole thing they did they divorced they divorced when i was 12 um oh, right okay. around the time right after i had done my first film and uh of course i stay i ended up like living with my mom mm -hmm. um and then i just went wild i mean i was a crazy <clears throat> a crazy crazy kid and did um you know i got into drugs and did you know crazy stuff that I have, I've actually written a whole film of just like stories about growing up because whenever I tell people stories, they're just like, what? You didn't do that. That's insane. Did your life is that, that, that what you just described is exactly what happened to me when I was 14. Yeah. 
you know, my, my dad left and I lived with my mom and she and I just went off the rails. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, I didn't know, you know, I, I, I wanted to live because, you know, my dad was just like abusive and, and nasty. And um, so I wanted to live with my mom, but I didn't ever, you know, I didn't have any, um, an example of how to, I mean, all I knew was my dad was an intimidator and I knew that like, you know, the only, the way I could control the situation was by, was with rage and making my mom afraid of me. And so, yeah, you know, I, I, I learned that, you know, from, from like watching my dad. So as a teenager, I was like really, you know, angry and, um, you know, luckily she was, um, you know, she just had to, in a way, had to step back and sort of let me do, you know, let me sort of, you know, either, either figure it out or crash and burn. And and I luckily figured it out. And, um, you know, a lot of my, fr- <clears throat> a lot of my friends didn't make it. And it's, um, and I feel like it's because I had the focus of art and I knew what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to play music and make films and do all this And that was my focus. So I remember like, you know, sitting around, you know, doing, you know, doing a bunch of crazy drugs with friends. And I was, you know, we were always like having these great conversations of like, okay, like let's, uh, you know, let's open a business, you know, or let's like, (laughs) let's write a, you know, let's write a movie and let's make this movie, you know? And then, you know, my friends would be like, oh, that sounds cool. And then like do another line. And I'd be like, uh, okay, well, I'm going to go do that stuff we were just talking about. I'll see y'all later, you know, and that's what saved me. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I, I totally understand that. And I feel like it's an absolute blessing and a privilege to have that avenue that I feel a lot of people won't allow themselves to acknowledge. Um, or accept it as an alternative to just the status quo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've always, um, I've always like had a true north, you know, and it and it was this this thing that I wanted, you know, this life that I wanted. It's like I want to live. I want this life where I hang out with these cool, creative people, and we like make art and like you know live these extraordinary lives, you know, and and that's been my true north, and um, you know that's. Uh, uh, you know, it kept me out of a lot of trouble and, you know, it kept me a focus, but then also going to what you guys were sort of talking about in the beginning of this thing about, you know, what I've sacrificed is, you know, I don't have like a normal life. I mean, I don't have kids. I'm 43. I've never been married. Um, I sort of had to decide at some point that like this was a lifestyle for me and that I wouldn't be happy um, you know, trying, you know, if I did, you know, end up getting somebody pregnant and having, having kids, I, w- I would have to go, okay, well, I have to sort of be grounded and have a normal job and provide for a family. Um, yep. And so I've, you know, I've purposefully avoided that because I feel like, um, you know, art is my, is, is the legacy that I want to leave in the world. I'm on the exact same page as you, man. Um, when did you realize that? Yeah. When did I realize? Yeah. When did you realize that, you know, as, uh, the great band, the descendants say commit or be committed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
I, I, you know, I, I remember being in my twenties and going, Oh, you know, by the time when I'm, when I'm 30, I'll, I'll, um, you know, get married and, and have a family. And then, you know, 30 <clears throat> rolled, rolled around and I was like, man, I was having like the most fun at 30. <laughs> you know, I was still like having a blast and, you know, in all through my thirties, I mean, I remember, you know, friends of mine that did have families with kids and, and then being like, you know, I, I love my family, but I, I'm really jealous of you that you at least get to try to pursue this thing that you want. And I don't get to, I have to like go clock in, you know? Um, so I think that, I think it really, um, solidified for me around my mid thirties where I finally was just like, you know what? Like, cause I always thought if I didn't have kids that I would feel like I missed out on something. And it wasn't until around my mid to late thirties that I, I sort of accepted it and said, you know, there's plenty of people in this world and, you know, there's plenty of, uh, you know, my, my friends have kids. Um, you know, I have a 17 year old niece, you know, and, um, you know, I, there's still plenty of like kids out there to, you know, I can live vicariously through my friends and, you know, love their families, you know, but I can still get to pursue this, this thing, you know, Yeah, you get to be the rad uncle. Yeah. Yeah, no, I totally, I, I understand. I get that a hundred percent. Now, if I can take you back to, <clears throat> pardon me, if I can take you back to music for a second. Mm-hmm. Now, I know you and Timo knows you through music. Mm-hmm. So today, I think we're going to focus more on your film uh, career, mm-hmm. but I'd like to talk about the music a little bit because that for me is how, I got to know you and how we became friends. So you played in Pez, Bury the Living, and Greaseland, if I'm not mistaken? Yes. Greaseland was my first band that, you know, we never toured or, <clears throat> you know, put any proper albums out. But I was also in a band called Akasha, which was sort of oh, yeah. Pe- Pez minus Marv. Yeah. Um, and a few other bands. Uh, I was in a band called Samsa with the dude from um, Panopticon. Have you heard Panopticon? No. Oh, it's, it's kind of, it's pretty, it's cool. It's metal. It's uh, really super technical and weird. And, nice. um, and yeah, so Samsa, um, you know, the, 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 the bands that were most, that really did stuff was Pez and Bury the Living. Yeah. Well, I'm, I mean, I've toured a ton with Pez and I know you guys got to Europe. So did Bury the Living. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if Bury the, Bury the Living ever got to Canada, but I know Pez did. We did not, unfortunately. Mm. I would have loved it. Yeah. Same. <laughs> but so <clears throat> now for you with regards to music, like what was the first band? We asked this to our, our, our first guest. And what was the first band that you saw? that made you be like, holy shit, this is, this is it. This is, this is what I want to do. This is, this speaks to me more than, than anybody outside of this room will ever know. Um, you know, that's a weird, uh, that's an interesting question. Cause I, I was always tuned into music, um, but at a, even at a, at a young age, you know, so I, I always like, 
you know, and of course, like growing up, you know, it's like stuff on the radio and I was always like fascinated by it. And then, you know, MTV comes and then, you know, I was into metal and stuff, you know, before I, I, um, got into punk rock. Um, but you know, I mean, this is going to sound, <laughs> this is going to sound weird because really, but really it's the best answer is when I was 12, I saw my first, I, I had just started going to punk shows and I saw my first Pez show at 12. And this was uh, my older brother and Marv's younger brother have been best friends since they were in fifth grade. So I was in first grade. So I've known Marv and his family since I was seven. And I saw my first Pez show at 12 and I go, whoa, like here, these are like normal dudes. This is a guy I know and a couple of guys that I know, and they can get up here and do this. Like, if they can do this, I can do this. And that was when I first, I mean, I used to like at 12, I remember like having this Walkman and my parents were still together. And I remember like, you know, putting it on when I went to sleep at night and like listening to the Pez demo at 12 and like, <laughs> um, and imagining being in the band, you know, like, imagining how cool it would be to like be on stage and you know because the uh, we the there was like one punk club in Memphis at that time the Antenna Club is where we all like first started playing and they had all ages shows so i would get drug along to these punk shows a 12 year old with a bunch of you know 17 20 year olds you know and i was just like oh my god this is a cool thing ever and here's all the weird people that you know that i found and so uh, as weird as it sounds to say, um, you know, Pez is that band. And then eight years later, I found myself in the band. Crazy. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I, w- I, was the, I was Pez's biggest fan before I joined the band. So <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. It's, it's, it was pretty cool. Um, now- that's, a, that's a real powerful thing with punk rock. Uh, it's, it's like it's it's my people. If they yeah. can do it, I can do it. There's not this notion of a rock star going, well, you know, this is John Bon Jovi, or I don't know, this is Slash or Axl Rose. I mean, I'm I'm not that guy, right? And and that was you know I you know I remember because you know I was into Guns and Roses, you know, like um, and I remember like you know seeing the video and there's like the video with like Slash and he's in the hotel room and he's got the snakes and like the hot girls there, you know, and like, I thought that's what you had to be to play music. I just thought you, you were just already that guy. And then, you know, whatever. And I mean, that was the beauty of punk rock was, it was like, Oh, like normal people. And like, everybody has a voice and, you know, everybody can, anybody can do this. And, you know, that was, that was the beauty of it and the power of it. Absolutely. Now, I have a question with regards to the politics of the bands you were in. Because both bands, uh, I'm, when I say both bands, I say Bury the Living and Pez. Now, both bands were, quote-unquote, political bands. Bury the Living more so, I would assume. Mm-hmm. Now, what were the politics in the bands, and how do they apply to your overall life philosophy? I know that with Pez, one of the things that I always respected about uh, your band was pretty much Marv's religious views and everybody else's religious views. And the fact that within the same record, you could have 
a song that was pro religion and spirituality. And the next song was anti-religion and spirituality. And yet everyone in that band managed to maintain uh, an incredibly high level of respect for each other. And nobody really impeded on anyone's creative process. Um, that's it's, I'm glad, I'm so glad that you picked up on that because, you know, we would get a review in like MRR or some publication and it would say, um, look out for Jesus lyrics, you know? So, <laughs> so, you know, they wouldn't look any further into it than that. And, you know, didn't realize that, you know, there was a, a conversation because, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I mean, I guess I would consider myself an atheist. I, I don't really know. Um, I definitely like believe in a, a spirituality and I believe in something greater. Um, but I'm not, uh, you know, I just don't, I, I just can't say anything definitively. I, I leave everything open. Um, and, and I, I don't believe in anything, but I recognize the possibility for everything. And, um, you know, Marv is this great example of somebody who is a Christian who, who, you know, lives it and, you know, really interprets, um, you know, I think what it's supposed to be. And he's, you know, he's not one of these, you know, phony, uh, evangelicals, you know, he's, he puts his money where his mouth is and, and there are those people, you know, and, and they kind of get lost when you, um, you know, in the, you know, Jimmy Swaggerts and the, you know, just the, <laughs> all, you know, all these people, you know, the, um, the good Christians get lost yeah. in, you know, the antics of these, you know, crazy Trumpers and all that stuff. Um, so it was, it was, it was, and, you know, I think we even talked about it, about, you know, it, it was cool, you know, even cause, you know, like I would write a song sort of about my sort of struggles with, um, you know, faith and, uh, I remember that, I mean, there's really one, there's this one seven inch in particular where, you know, Marv sort of, you know, writes a song called Broken Two, you know, about, and it's about his spirituality and whatever. And I wrote this song called Drifting Away. And um, my song was about, I was sort of, a you know, almost admiring the fact that, um, that Christians had an anchor because, uh, you know, I felt like, you know, I, I felt like I was going insane. I felt like I was, you know, drifting away because I didn't have this sort of concrete thing to sort of latch onto and say, you know, this is what I believe, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I, at the time I was going to a, I actually was going to a church uh, because my friend ended up that I grew up with ended up being the head pastor of a church. And I really love him and I respect him and he's a super smart dude and he was a great speaker and he was inspiring. And I enjoyed the community that they built. I enjoyed that there was a group of people who hung out for the sole purpose of trying to learn how to be cool. So I was going to this church, but I was like this black sheep who was like, you know, I would like actually go to their like potluck Bible studies and I'd be like, mm, I don't really, I don't believe that, you know, <laughs> you know, I would like challenge them, but I was sort of accepted as part of the part of the group. And I, but I was like, definitely like, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I made it known that I was an atheist and, you know, what I did and didn't believe, you know, and, um, I, I think that's cool. You know, I think it's cool as, you know, because like going back to Marv and, you know, Marv writing his songs about his spirituality, it's like, I know 
that that's what it takes for Marv to be who he is. And, you know, his belief is not, you know, he's not one of those people whose, you know, belief infringes on anyone else. And so mm-hmm. I respect that. Yeah, and he and he respects me and we have man we we would get deep in the van on some <laughs> overnight you know late night drives driving through the desert and just man talk about you know we we would uh you know just talk about everything you know get we would get real yeah and you, know, you said a really important word conversations and you know we can idealize punk rock and sometimes it's a bit rigid, right? The MR, be careful of the Jesus uh, lyrics. Uh, why not open up to these conversations and have in the band different perspective and then these different perspectives can cohabit in a respectful way. Uh, seems pretty incredible and pretty creative that a band can contain that. Yeah, you know, I remember there was a venue in Memphis that was uh, it, it, it was run by different people, but at one point it was run by one of the guys from Tragedy, and um, they had a policy of like no Christian bands, you know. And um, I, you know, I to- I get it, but I remember like having a conversation with them one time about it and saying like, "What are you afraid they're going to change your mind?" Um, (laughs) but you know, and, but I, I, at the same time, like I respect, you know, I, I don't know how those guys grew up, you know, they might've grown up with it shoved down their throats, you know, as I did as well. And they just might be at a point where like, I don't want to hear this shit anymore. And I I respect that too, you know? Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. All right. So I feel like, I mean, we just, and I apologize for this. We kind of just glossed over to a certain degree, your musical career, but you know, as, as a, as a fan, please know that I thank you for everything you've, you've done and released musically. <laughs> I appreciate I'm a huge that. Pez fan. <laughs> thank you. No worries. But now back to your film career. According to your IMDb, again, it says you returned to acting in 2005. So from when you stopped acting and started focusing on music, in what year would that have been? Um, from, from about 92 to 2005. Oh, I shit. didn't. Okay. Yeah, I didn't do any acting. Okay, but now like when you would come back from tour and stuff like that, would you work on sets would you because i know you did set design and set building and stuff like that Uh, that that, all come later too that came way later um in those pre-2005 i was um you know solely focused on music and you know i just thought um uh you know i just didn't uh, i didn't realize that a career in film was a viable option. I I didn't even know, you know, I just sort of forgot about that world and didn't know that world existed. Um, Especially in Memphis, you know, I thought, well, if you wanted to be in that world, you had to live in LA. And I think it was, um, you know, it it was in between some Barry, you know, around that year, 2005, 2006, Barry the Living was very active in touring. And so it was between some tours and I was at a coffee shop and, you know, once again, same as when I was 12 years old and I saw that um, notice about an audition, 
at the coffee shop, there was a notice on the bulletin board and it said, you know, audition for a short film and I, and, or not a short film. It was actually a feature film. Um, and I thought, I just had totally forgotten about it. And I go, oh, wow. You know, that's something that I can do by myself. Like, I don't have to coordinate with four other knuckleheads <laughs> to to get to do this um, artistic expression. You know, this is something that, you know, I can go to this audition by myself. And then if I get the role, then I, you know, go to the film and I work on it by myself. And um, that was really appealing to me. And I, you know, I didn't expect to get the role. I just, because I hadn't acted in years. And, um, but yeah, I went and I auditioned and it was a very, very small part. But um, I remember there was a, uh, there was a party scene and there was a bunch of, you know, people, you know, my, my same age, you know, I'm in my, you know, kind of, you know, mid to later twenties at the time. And uh, there were all these, actors there and uh you know i was just sitting there and that we were in this like kitchen of this house and all these people these women and um they're all like they're just talking like oh who's your agent oh oh i don't i've heard about them i've heard they're good oh oh you got an audition for that i didn't get an my agent didn't send me that audition i need to get on the phone oh who does your headshots oh those are really good you know i need to call them and get my headshots and then i remember saying like wait a minute like you guys are you know living in memphis and you're like being trying to be actors and they're like yeah. And, um, and I, you know, I had no idea that you could do that. <laughs> and so, um, so yeah, from there, I just started like going to more auditions and it, I think it was like the next year I got, I got a lead in a feature film, a uh, feature horror film called live animals that it didn't end up coming out till 2008. But, um, you know, and then of course, like I was like, Oh, okay, well, uh, this is a thing. So I, I I pursued acting for for years, some years after that, pretty hard. Well, it's it's good that you mentioned live animals because um, you also did the soundtrack to that movie. I did a song on the soundtrack. Oh, you did a song on the soundtrack. Okay. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> acoustic. Uh, me me as a, as an acoustic artist. Oh, nice. Because I was going to ask, like, how does writing a soundtrack for a, a film differ from playing in a band but i guess it was kind of like oh yeah i guess the soundtrack that's my mistake soundtrack would be just the songs that were used in the film as opposed to a a score uh, score thank you i was like how do you say it um yeah yes uh yeah i just did it, it was just a song that i think there was a guitar on set one day we were filming and i was sitting around playing a song that i had written and the director heard it and he goes hmm uh can we record that and put it in the film? I was like, yeah, that'd be great. Sweet. So they paid for you to go to a studio and no, they set up a home studio and, and uh, did it them, did it themselves, but I was thrilled. And that, you know, that film had uh, international distribution. It used to play on like the, um, whatever the horror, there was a horror channel on cable, maybe like shutter or chiller or something like that. And it used to play on TV and stuff like that. Sweet. Did you sign a nice residuals deal? So every time it airs, you get a little cut. 
No, that was a, there was, well, you know what? That's not true. I did get, I did get residuals from that. Um, I did get checks for a little while. I had like a, you know, like a 3% deal or something, you know, um, which didn't end up being a lot. I, you know, I remember the, the DVD, I remember seeing the DVD and then after a few years, you remember those like DVDs that you would see, like you're waiting in the checkout line and there's like, (laughs) yeah. And there's like five bad horror movies on one DVD and it's like ax wielding maniacs and, you know, and it's all these like similar movies. Well, then it showed up on those. (laughs) Um, and then it's just sort of faded into obscurity. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I guess with filmmaking, it's the same as music, you know, there, there's so much of it made and it can't, everything can't be critically acclaimed and widely consumed. Right. So now you've acted in over 30 films, you've directed 13 films and you have five producer credits that I know of. I I think uh i think those you know a lot of that um those imdb there's a lot of stuff that like isn't on imdb so you know as my as far as my acting credits it's way more than that and you know my directing credits are way you know including music videos are way more than that as well that's cool. just just the stuff that's listed on imdb so hmm, okay well then quick question what is the difference between a producer and a director um, so a director is sort of respond, you know, ultimately the director has the final say in the creative vision. Um, and a producer just like makes it happen. So a producer, um, you know, like you see executive, an executive producer gets money. Okay. Um, so, you know, if, if somebody's listed as an executive producer, then all they really did was like get money, but like a, a producer producer, like, I mean, they're like coordinating things. I mean, they're, they're really getting the ball rolling and allowing the director to focus on their vision. And, um, you know, and then like on a set, when you get to a a film and you're, and you're actually working, um, you know, the assistant director is the one who deals with like the nuts and bolts of like making sure everything runs on time, making sure, you know, oh, like this person's going to be in makeup for five minutes. So we got to hold for this so that the director can really focus on working with the actors and, you know, making the final calls on, you know, the look and everything like that. Okay, fair enough. Now, and I mean this with no disrespect because okay. I know nothing about filmmaking, especially on a, on a independent level. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and there are different levels of independent. Like that's been clearly defined at this point. Right. Um, but uh, is, is there a full crew per se on the majority of the films you've directed or is it just like a skeleton crew kind of like a diy um you know if you're working on a limited budget does like your punk rock mentality come into it whereby you just go we get it done however we can do you call on on your friends who are in the scene which i guess at this point would be the movie scene i mean uh yeah i mean absolutely as as a uh as an up and coming filmmaker, 
you know, you absolutely have to do that. And, and, um, so it is, it, it is very like punk rock, you know, like I've never, you know, the biggest sort of, you know, the biggest project I've ever been a part of had like a hundred thousand dollar budget. And it was like a series of like live performance, uh, music videos, you know, featuring Memphis and artists in the Delta in these sort of like historically significant spaces around Memphis and the Delta. Um, so that was a whole series. Um, and, you know, but yeah, the, the stuff that I do like of mine, if it's something that I've written, it's like, I have to do it. You know, you have to like beg, borrow and steal and you have to like sell your soul. And I mean, I've, I've literally like had, um, you know, I've traded carpentry work for, uh, to have like a cinematographer come and, you know, and it's like, okay, like we'll do a day for day. Like you, you know, shoot my movie and I'll renovate your kitchen, <laughs> you know? Um, so you just, you know, uh, you, it, it's totally born out of the DIY thing and, and you have, you have to just make it work however you can. And it's so hard. It's, it's such an impossible task, but but I love it so much. Well, I, I know for what film was it? Arrow of Light, you launched an Indiegogo and you got like 80% of the funding you wanted. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which, you know, it was, uh, that was something for sure. Um, it's, it's never enough. You know, you always need more. And, um, but yeah, I was, I was really proud of that and, and proud to be able to do that. No. What do you love so much? What's about? That? What do you exactly love so much? Ask. About, you know, you say, I love this so much. Is it the directing part? Is it the whole movie making part? What is it? Um, I Like, so for me, um, as an art form, film is, because since I, you know, because I've dabbled in, uh, you know, everything and music and writing and everything. Well, film is this combination of all those things. And so you know, it, it allows you to, you know, have a hand in every bit of, you know, those worlds. So you can, you know, you, you can write the story and then you can, you know, you work with actors and, you know, you get your acting fix there. And then you, you know, um, I do, uh, I do production design for a lot of, um, projects which means you know i deal with like the look uh, of everything you know the set i you know the set design and props and all that stuff you know um so it had it appeals to my you know eye for design and um you know and then you get to deal with the music and it, you know it, it you know it appeals to my music so it, to me it's almost like the highest like form of art because it encompasses so many forms of art at once so that's what I love about it. And where's the limit for you? You said, you know, you have to almost sell your soul. So where's that limit between, you know, just, I don't know, doing on one, one end of the spectrum, doing commercials or, and doing something that's really close to your heart. Um, I, you know, I have to juggle both. Um, and uh, so I, you know, I do work on, I work on commercials and I work on, you know, it's like, I'll go work, uh, I, you know, I work in special effects as well. So I'll do special effects on like a Hallmark Christmas movie, you know, which is like, it's in the film world, but it's like a really not a piece of art that I care about, you know, but it sort of allows me to like be in that world 
and network and meet people that um, you know maybe can help me along the way and and being able to do my own stuff. So, you know, I I always have this goal. I have um, several feature films written. Um, I enter them in uh, a lot of film festivals have screenplay competitions. And so I enter these things into screenplay competitions, hoping that, you know, I get some awards, I get, you know, something, somebody takes notice and says, oh, you know, I'll be a producer on that. I'll get you the money to be able to do this project. And so, um, you know, I do, I, I kind of, as much as I can, I keep myself in this, in this film world uh, to hopefully get to the end, uh, which is, you know, being able to make my own stuff. Well, the the way you describe working on the Hallmark commercial or the Hallmark movie, I mean, realistically, you have to be able to sustain your living. You have to be able to live. Mm-hmm. So the thing is, whereas other people will work some shitty job they hate, you're at least still working in your milieu and like you said, you can network, you can meet people, you can, you know, I, I, I think for, in my opinion, that's kind of a win-win as long as you're not just like absolutely hating everything about it on a daily basis. Cause I know that days on set can be grueling. <laughs> oh yeah. And, and, you know, and some projects can be, uh, really terrible. Um, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of, <clears throat> A lot of terrible people are attracted to the film industry, you know, a lot of a lot of narcissists and, you know, people that like to use people. And so it can be a tough world. Everybody wants to be famous, man. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you know, um, I, I always say that there's like there's filmmakers that are in love with the art of film. And then there's filmmakers who are in love with telling people that they're filmmakers. And, um, you know, there's a lot of like. You know, it's it's really it's really funny the difference from when I was an actor to when I became a director because you know if I go to a film festival now and you know and I'm like oh I'm an actor people are like oh that's cool you know whatever but you know as soon as you say you're a director people are like ooh what are you working on here's my here's my headshot and resume you know it's like suddenly there's this like attention that people, you know, want something from you, you know, and, and, and that could be intoxicating for some people. So what are the qualities of a good filmmaker? Um, I think, you know, as far do you, uh, um, you know, a good director, I, you know, what, what I try to do is I find people who are really good at, what they do and that I, and that I get along with, I jive with. So I find, you know, really great, like cinematographers and great, um, you know, people, you know, people that, uh, you know, do score and, and, you know, all the people in all these different positions. And I, you know, you know, bring them in and I allow them to do what they do. Um, and I don't try to, and I don't micromanage everything because, you know, if you bring in cool people that are really good at what they do, most of the time they're going to bring something better than you could have imagined to it, you know? And I've, I've seen so many directors that want to, you know, micromanage everything because, you know, in their, in their minds, they're a genius and, you know, no one could possibly come up with anything better than what they have thought of. So, um, 
you know, I think as a director, it's, um, you know, it's all about, you know, you know, finding those good people and putting these people together and then trusting them and, you know, um, allowing them to, you know, do their thing and, and, you know, be a, be a, be a part of it and bring what they bring and, and, and letting everyone feel good about it, you know, instead of, you know, it's, it's the same thing in bands, you know, um, we used to always talk about how, you know, there's two different types of bands, you know, there's bands where there's a band leader and they, you know, write everything and everything they say goes and they dictate what everybody in the band does. And all those people are just sort of along for the ride. And then there's bands where, everybody has an equal voice and um you know in, in bands like pez and, and bury the living it was very much a you know a democracy you know it was very much uh you know if you know we we always used to say like if you know if you're in the van you're in the band you know so like um you know everybody had a say and i and i appreciate that i, I mean that's why that's what i love about artists this collaborative mm. um sense rather as opposed to you know i don't want to be a dictator i don't think that i'm right i you know i don't think that you know my ideas are better than everyone else's yeah but to to a certain degree there has to be some i would assume and these are all massive assumptions and i apologize but i would assume there has to be some level of confidence in your vision Mm -hmm. um that you want people to adhere to. Yeah. Um, the, yeah, there's definitely a, um, you know, at the, you know, as the director at the end of the day, you know, the, the final decision is yours. And so, you know, if, if there was something that I really didn't like, I'd have to say like, well, no, no, we can't do it that way. You know? And, um, yeah. So, you know, there is a, you know, there is that. And, and as I, do it more and more, I grow more confident in my own, you know, artistic um, ideas, you know, whereas like, you know, when I was younger, I'd be like, gosh, I don't know, maybe we do it, you know, and, and, um, you know, now I'm, now I'm, I'm more confident and, and can, you know, say what I want more. What I'm hearing is that you recognize that there's limits to your vision and you allow other people's visions to come through and say, does this work? Yeah, it does work. I didn't think of it that way or I didn't see it that way. Mm -hmm. There's that openness rather than what you call the dictating of vision. It's my vision and this is how it's going to be done. Uh, You realize other people have other ways of seeing it that could actually work. And yeah. And I, and I think it's even, you know, it's, I, to me, it's better that way, um, you know, because I, I do think it's unfortunate that, um, you know, it takes the whole team to to make the movie. And it's unfortunate that, you know, the directors, the director usually gets, you know, all the credit or all the scorn. You know, if it's a great movie, everyone's like, oh, you know, the director gets all the love and, you um, you know, but you know, it's the, you know, the cinematographer doing their job and the production designer and the gaffers and the grips and, you know, every, everybody, you know, so, uh, it definitely, it, it requires everybody and everybody's very important, you know? Yeah. I love that quote. If you're in the van, you're in the band. 
<laughs> I mean, we used to say that about, uh, you know, we'd have somebody like along for the ride, you know, like they're like the roadie and we're like, nope, you're in the band. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was Tebow's role with us, with DBS. Like he was, you know, you're, you're on this trip. You're, you're one of us. You're part of the, the circus freaks, the traveling carnival. You know? Nice. Do you say with DBS as well? Yeah. yeah. He was their tour manager. Oh, word. Okay. Yeah, then, for a few years. Well, you know, I mean, Pez and DBS played a bunch of shows together. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, one of, one of those tours I wasn't on, you know, the last time I remember playing with DBS, I think it was like a Halloween show in like Vancouver or something. And anyways, I liked that band. Yeah. I think you, yeah. I think you were back here, Tebow. Maybe. I don't know. If, it was probably 99, <laughs> fall 99 or something. Uh, maybe it was last time. I don't remember, to be honest. I, I can't. Uh, <laughs> the chronology in terms of years is difficult for me to. <laughs> oh, yeah. A lot of that stuff is just, it's, you know, like like when you asked before we started, you know, we were like, yeah, I mean, we've met. Yeah, right. You know, but, you know, that's, that's been a long time and my memory is fuzzy. Well, yeah. now here's my next question. Okay. You already answered. <laughs> nice face. Um, um, how has age affected the way you view things? I know we talked about making the commitment to the artistic vision and forsaking family and kids and this and that. But I mean, you know, you're, you're 43 years old and I don't know, does, does, does the reality of your age affect anything in regards to how carefree you are with how things are are done or has it become, has, has focus become a little more important? Um, focus is definitely more important. And I'm, you know, the, the reality of my age and that, it, that, you know, every year I just have less and less time um, to see this, you know, to achieve this vision and, and, um, you know, I, I wish that I had rediscovered my love of film. I wish I had come to this point earlier in my life um, and that I could have gotten a head start. I mean, because honestly, like I got a, I got a late start um, on, on a film career, um, even though I did stuff, you know, when I was younger. But, you know, it was, it was 2005, 2006 when I made the decision that I, this is what I want my career to be and this is what I want my lifestyle to be. So I do, I do feel like I, you know, wasted some time. And, um, so there is a, uh, I, I definitely get stressed out by, uh, you know, I'm the kind of person I, you know, I feel guilty when I watch a movie, you know, like if I, if I'm exhausted after work and I just want to, you know, watch, WandaVision and eat some bad Chinese food, I get, I, you know, I've, I feel guilty about it because I'm like, this is time that you could be working on your art and working on your craft. And so I have this constant struggle between like, you know, you do, it is important to like relax and turn your brain off and, absolutely, you, you know, you don't have to be so focused, but then, you know, I wake up every day and I'm like, I'm not where I want to be. And so how do I get there? How do I become, how can I be more disciplined? How can I uh, devote more time to uh, my creative life? So that's very much a, a, a huge focus for me. 
So where do you want to be? Uh, I want to make my own, the films that I've written. Um, you know, I want to, I want to direct those films. Um, I have several feature length screenplays uh, and, you know, at different budgets. So, you know, I have uh, everything from a, you know, very low budget, scrappy indie film that could be made for, you know, $500,000 to, you know, something that would probably cost, you know, 30 million to make, um, you know, but, and it's just this, this whole, you know, every filmmaker's in this, in the same boat of like, where do you get the money? Where do you get the money? You know? Yeah. <clears throat> but it's funny to me that you say, when I was talking before about the different levels of indie, you say the biggest movie, you said something before about a movie with a hundred thousand dollar budget that you had worked on the feature length film. And now you're saying you're scrappy little indie, you know, for 500,000 bucks. Right. Like which is, which is, bucket. which is very low budget for uh, a film. Fair enough. I mean, I, I don't know much about this world at all. Um, but you know, when I see something like, Oh, this blockbuster cost $200 million to make or something absolutely fucking insane like that. You know, I, just, yeah. I, I don't get it. <laughs> it's, it's a huge, it's a to totally, it's such a wasteful, um, industry and um it's absurd the amount of money that um that they throw around and um you know you know i i'm i'm you know i'm working on a project i, I don't want to say what it is in in this um in this sense but it's actually a really cool um i've been doing special effects on a um on a tv show and it's very cool it's very it's like a historical thing about um you know some things in the uh, um civil rights movement uh which is really cool thing to be a part of you know but like the amount of money that you know they're just like it, it's staggering sometimes how much money they spend on you know one minute of screen time you know and 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 you're like you think like, man, if they just changed that to this, you know, if this person was just fishing on the bank rather than swimming, well, they would save $500,000, you know, the, the, the amount of, you know, for that minute of screen time, you know, they could easily save the amount of money that I could use to make an entire feature film, you know, just in this, you know, on, on changing this one little thing that wouldn't change the, the story very much, you know? And so it's, it's staggering the amount of, you know, the $200 million movies. I mean, they're just flushing money down the toilet. Yeah. But uh, so, so to me, this, you as a special effects person in the hierarchy of the actual film you're working on or TV series you're working on, you can't go to the director and be like, Hey, so I'm a director too. And if I was doing this, I would do it this way. You would get yeah. blacklisted so oh, yeah, fast. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'd, get I'd get run out of there real quick. Yeah. Real quick. Yeah. Do you think technology is going to change something? Uh, make it cheaper? The, you know, the, the ability to film, the quality of filming... Uh, it it already is and that's um and that is something that is great in that you know you can't we can still um you know i mean you can pick up a camera and 
yeah, I mean, anybody can make a film just, you know, just like, you know, it was with, you know, when we were younger in punk rock bands and, you know, you could, you got a hold of a four track and then suddenly, you know, everyone could make a demo tape or, you know, whatever. So it, it is, it makes it, um, it definitely makes it a lot easier and and more accessible for a lot of people. And there are people that make great work. I mean, there's people that have made great films shot on iPhones, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it is possible. And, you know, the, but the thing about the hard part about that is, you know, say you have a, a so like I mentioned before, I have a, you know, I wrote a feature that would be a low budget feature, you know, like um, that I could probably shoot for like 500, 500 grand, you know, and I wrote it as a producer. I wrote it as um, I, I made sure to make it like, OK, this features two characters and a lot of the every a lot of stuff is outside. So, you know, you can utilize natural lighting. So you can think about things in terms of like what you have and what you have to spend. And, um, you know, that's, you know, that's the difference. And, you know, the thing that I said I wrote that would cost, you know, $30 million to make, well, that was my exercise. And if money was no object, what movie <laughs> would I write? You know? And I, and so I wrote that movie, you know? Um, but, you know, as a producer, I think a lot of, you know, a, and as an up and coming filmmaker, it is important to write as a producer and think about, you know, things that you have, you know, at your disposal, like say you're, um, you know, say like somebody in your family has a farm and there's a, you know, there's a, there's an old barn and you're like, well, you know, they would let me come and shoot in this barn. Well, what can I write around this barn? You know, mm, so you, you write around things that you have at your disposal. Yeah, fair enough. But I, you- but I, I oh, think, sorry, uh, um, but, you know, for me, it's like, um, you know, e- even, you know, at, at this point, it's hard to find people who will go along with you, you know, for no money. You know, you, you definitely have to have some money and some, you know, resource. I mean, you know, the, the film, the first feature that I, that I was the lead in, God, I think that movie was made for like $6,000. And, but, you know, we were all like, you know, in our mid twenties and we were all, you know, just happy to be there. And we spent months and months of, you know, nights and weekends, you know, going and, and, and putting in the time. And it's, and it's really hard to find um, people who are willing to commit to that. Now, do you think that's a generational thing, you know, based on attention span and entitlement and people, everyone thinking they're special or is that just progression? I, I, I think it's evolution. Sorry. Yeah, I think it is. It, it, you know, it, it it might be harder now, and and maybe you know maybe as I'm, it's because I'm a little bit older, and like, you know, I'm not friends with it. when I was in probably around around 2005, 2006. My friends that I grew up with. Uh, we decided we were going to make our own movie and we, you know, we were all, you know, no, no one was married yet. No one had kids. We all like lived in this, you know, punk rock house. And we, um, 
you know, so we didn't have anything to do other than like, you know, work these jobs and we had a blast and, you know, the movie never fully got finished uh, because of, you know, one reason or another, but, um, you know, we had the advantage of, you know, we were young, we were happy to be involved and we were just having a good time given our time, you know, but, you know, for me, um, you know, I would have to find these sort of, you know, young idealistic people who were also talented and just convince them, you know, like I said earlier, a lot of like, you know, low budget filmmaking is beg borrowing and stealing. So a lot of times you have to like convince people to go on this ride with you and go, okay, well, you know, we're about to suffer for a long time and you're not going to get paid. However, in the end, you know, this is going to work out. And I I've really tried to look at, um, you know, a person's career that I've really looked at as, sort of, uh, you know, the, the blueprint is, um, my friend Craig Brewer, who's a Memphian and he made probably in the early two thousands, he made his first feature film and he made it with, you know, uh, the, the, one of the first like little digital camcorders that you could buy. And also, a, a like a little, like high eight camera. And he like made his own lights and he took, you know, two years, he had this, you know, basically it took him two years to film. So he had to like convince these people to not get paid and be on this ride with him for two years. And he was able to scrap this, this film together and it, and it ended up being really good. And it ended up like winning best digital film at the Hollywood film fest. And then that's what oh. kicked off his career. And now he just directed, uh, coming to America too. So, oh, shit. <laughs> um, you know, so that's, you know, that that's sort of the blueprint that I've always looked at. It's like, you know, you have to like scrap something together with whatever you can. You know, you have to make art, you know, something good, but you have to make something by any means necessary and it has to be good. And then from there. Um, but but I, I just also wonder whether that was in a, you know, it was still kind of novel, you know, the indie film scene at the time that he did it, it was still kind of novel. And now with technology, it's like, everybody's making a film. We're just like inundated with, mm -hmm. you know, films and, and overrun with them. So it's like, it's, music. yeah, it's probably harder to uh, be seen and, and have something unique that, that people care about. Now I have a question for you with regards to arrow of light. So Arrow of Light did a bunch of film festivals. It won an Audience Choice Award at the UNO Film Fest. Um, and the star of it, Toby Nichols, he won Best Performer at the Kite Film Fest. And he was nominated for Young Entertainer Awards. And now he is in a Netflix series, uh, Iron Lung. So my question is, was first, it's two part. One, was that film like a jumping off point for him? And with regards to like <clears throat> with regards to like him you being able to hire hire like as we're talking i don't know how many people you hire how many people you you ask to do the movies for free and this and that and so my question is does does it make you feel good that he's achieving success or do you have that weird ingrained mentality that a lot of us from the nineties have who counterintuitively strive to keep the things we love for our own and not for mainstream consumption? Uh, no, I'm, I'm definitely, um, 
you know, I was very lucky to work with Toby. Um, he was great and he had done some things, you know, already before I worked with him, but, um, man, I, I always want to see people, you know, do amazing stuff. I'm always like proud of, of people when they, when they succeed. And, you know, I, I don't, I, I just, it, that, it inspires me, you know, it inspires me to see somebody do good, you know, somebody that I like. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm super proud of him and, and he was great to work with. And it was I figured that would be your answer, but I just wanted to, cause you know what I'm talking about that weird nineties punk mentality where it's like, this is ours. Right. You know? Um, and as I said, I, I looked it up and then I saw him and then I went on down a little rabbit hole on him. I mean, he's doing really well for himself. Yeah. I haven't seen, um, I haven't checked in on him in a little while to see uh, what he's been up to. I need to, I need to look at it. Cause, cause that, that was going to be my next question. <clears throat> for a lot of these films that you've made, they're, they're short films. The majority of them. Yeah. You'd say. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 All right. So, you know, but by the way, you're discuss you're, you're explaining it. I, I, I'm curious to know what the ratio of approximately, obviously like how many people are paid, how many people are uh, like big borrow and steal kind of mm-hmm. thing, you know? Um, it's different every time, you know, it's, uh, I, like I want to, uh, you know, I wish I could pay everybody, you know, all the money in the world every time, you know? Um, but a lot of times it's, you know, there, there's a, there's a thing that comes up and I, I follow all these like filmmaking, um, pages like on Facebook and stuff, you know, where filmmakers network and, you always get like somebody on there who goes, Hey, you know, um, I'm making this project. It's kind of a passion project. I don't have any money. Um, you know, you get paid and experience and a credit and, you know, and we'll feed you. And, you know, a lot of people, when people post something like that, then these other people get on there and they go after them and they go, if you don't have the money to pay people, then you shouldn't make a film. And I always hate that. I, it bugs me because, you know, once again, like my friend Craig, who, you know, he was that guy who had to scrap together a movie and now he can hire everybody and, and do Coming to America too, you know? So um, everybody has to start somewhere. And, um, you know, if, if you know, as much, as as there's a young filmmaker who is trying to, you know, wants to be a director. Well, then there's also like a young actor that's just trying to get experience. And there's mm-hmm. also a young cinematographer that wants to, you know, uh, be involved, you know, and, and why not? Like, you know, people should do this and, you know, everybody wants to pay everybody and nobody like wants to make people work for free. Um, but you just got to do what you can. Yeah, no, of course. And there should be like a Tinder in film where you swipe, I'll, I'll buy into this project or I'll, I'll go date in this project. Uh, oh, that's because, a good idea. Uh, because the, what you're describing this is one of the few, I'm trying to think of other art forms that are just so expensive. A painter paints, you know, a musician mm-hmm. plays music and we can record home studios, do a pretty good job. It doesn't have to be, you know, uh, a grand studio to have something that is worthwhile. But film mm-hmm. is that kind of 
where it is very expensive. Yeah. And you can, you know, you can make, I mean, I could go, you know, film something in my house with my iPhone and, you know, um, but it's not going to look good and it's not going to sound good. And, and, you know, so if you want any uh, sort of quality, you have to, you know, you do, you have to have some money and, and, you know, and that's why, you know, that's why I have these films, you know, you know, like my cheapest one that I say, you know, I need 500 grand, you know, I wouldn't make it for less than that because I wouldn't be able to do a good job. And Mm. I, you know, I don't want to spend my time doing something and take people on this journey. If the end result is not going to be good. But then I can sense, you know, the stress because it's kind of like, I need a lottery ticket. Mm Mm-hmm. It very to much really is. fulfill, you know, my artistic vision. Yeah, it very much is. It's uh, so much of luck is, um, you know, it's so much of luck is involved. And I, and I wish there was more of a way that I could, um, you know, do like, you know, because that was the beauty of punk rock is like, nobody's going to give us a record deal. Like we're going to record <laughs> this demo in the garage and we're just going to pass it out. And, you know, that whole, you know, I wish that I, there was more of that, um, you know, DIY, um, it, you know, I, I, I wish I was able to do more. I wish I could think of something that I could go shoot with an iPhone that that I that would be good and people would care about. But at this point, I I haven't. So, did David Lynch ever do that movie that he was talking about doing with Laura Dern that was all shot on iPhones? Mm, did you hear about that? I don't know about it was, that. One. It was years ago, but he was he was talking about at one point he gave an interview or something. I just I have, I have friends who are massive film buffs. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I'm a David Lynch fan. And I remember when I heard about this, even I was skeptical. I was just like, oh, that's probably going to be really bad. <laughs> well, I want, uh, you know, there was a movie that I saw, you know, a few years ago. Maybe it was like three years ago. And it was a feature film. And I think it was like Soderbergh. And he shot the whole thing on an iPhone. Really? Wow. Yeah. And and it looked pretty good. Like, I... I <laughs> I don't, I don't think I even knew that going into it. And then when I was watching the movie, I was like, something seems weird, you know, about the way this looks. And then later on, I learned that the whole thing was shot on an iPhone. So you, you can do it, you know, but then you, you know, to make it look good, you need like lighting, you know, you need professional lighting and, and you still need sound. Sound is the thing is where film is not forgiving. Um, you know, I've always said that, you know, you could shoot a good movie on a VHS camcorder as long as it sounds good. Like the the visual is very forget is a forgiving medium, but like if it sounds bad, then you just tune out instantly. So sound has to be really good. Mm. That's so that's a fair point. I mean, that applies to podcasts as well, and you know this. So I'm sure, uh, as I've heard on some of your podcasts, sometimes the guest has a shitty mic or something like that. And it, it, it really, sometimes it really comes through. Mm-hmm. Um, can I ask about another film? Yeah. Uh, Slaughterhouse Fi. <laughs> um, well, I have a couple questions about it. One, okay. you wrote it, directed and acted in it. Yes. Okay. So to go back to the director having 
the ability to just solely focus on what they're filming has to be impeded when you're an actor in the same film. Yes. And, and that was the last time that I ever did that. And, and, and I used to think that I, you know, when I wanted to do all the things, I used to think, well, I, I want to write the movies that I can act in, you know, to give myself something to do um, that I, uh, you know, give myself roles that I want to play. And I realized in that experience that um, I don't, you know, I realized that I, I'm a better director than I am an actor and, you know, it wasn't long after that, that I, you know, directed actors that were really good. And, and then I said, oh, you know, maybe I'm better off on this side of the camera. Um, so, um, yeah, that was, that was an interesting experience. But once again, you know, that was, that movie was made for like nothing. And that was, um, you know, we really, you know, I had a, a, a cinematographer and an editor who was down to shoot it and, you know, light it. And that, that was a skeleton crew of people not getting paid. And, you know, we shot, you know, over a month of weekends, you know. Okay. Now a couple more precise questions about it. The topic of that movie, barring the revenge scene, the, re mm -hmm. the revenge part of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, as a writer, do you take from, real i know you talked about as a kid you'd envision these these other worlds and stuff to get out of your current reality but like a movie like slaughterhouse five is there a basis in real life that do these things for, for those who don't know slaughterhouse five is this a revenge story against a fraternity um who sexually assault a guy's girlfriend yes and and i play the um I play the boyfriend and I, I find out about the assault and I go into the frat house in the middle of the night and I slaughter them all one by one. And, um, and so, yes, that was inspired by, um, you know, a, a friend of mine, um, you know, uh, a woman that I had dated that had a, you know, a similar experience to that, uh, you know, the assault thing. And I started to think about, you know, there's this thing that, you know, um, there's this thing that men say, you know, where we're like, you know, if my girlfriend or daughter or niece or whatever, if, you know, if somebody did something to them, I would murder those motherfuckers, you know, like dudes say that all the time, you know, and I started to. I, I just started to think about that, you know, like, well, you know, what would you like, what would you do? You know, if, if, if there was, um, you know, if, if somebody that you really loved had something really horrendous happen to them, you know, and, and it was just the idea of like, you know, my character in the film, you know, in the end, I, I, you know, I basically like sacrifice myself for her. I, I know I'm going to get caught doing this, but it's just like this, it's this expression of love, you know, like that's what I do to show her that I love her is that I, you know, slaughter all these frat guys and bring her a fishing stringer with all their wieners on it. Um, so <laughs> it's kind of, I mean, it's really twisted, but, um, <clears throat> You know that I just I just wanted to explore that thing that men say, um, and that's that's why I made that. And you know, people were like, 
you know, <laughs> at screenings of that, people are like, I can't believe, like, what it, like, I can't believe you made me watch that. <laughs> you know? Well, um, that to me almost seems like a trauma film. Yeah. And I, kind of and, goes to that, to that spectrum. <laughs> Well, you know, it's very similar to, you know, so I watched a bunch of revenge films, you know, before we did that. So I watched like Death Wish and, you know, <laughs> and things like that, you know, where, um, and, I, you know, part of what I wanted to do is I wanted to make a, a, you know, I wanted to make a slasher film where you're rooting for the killer. And so then I was like, well, you know, who's, the, you know, who, you know, who is somebody that everyone hates, you know, frat guys. So, so it works out well. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that was a, that was an interesting experiment, um, you know, in several, in so many different ways of, of, um, you know, in the story and in the way that we made that, you know, for nothing. And we really scrapped that together. And, you know, I've thought about trying to turn that idea into a feature film. Um, I could see that being great. But I think if I did expand it, I would have it where, you know, it was another, I would have it where it was a woman, um, you know, killing all the frat guys instead of, instead of a man. Because, you know, a lot of people were like, what do do you have like this like savior complex or something? And I was like, no, it's just, you know, it's a thing that dudes say all the time on guilt, you know. Do you see in in this type of genre like innovation? Because here you're talking about like this kind of social political kind of commentary within a horror film, mm-hmm. uh, and through the ages, I I am not familiar at all with horror movies. So, but do you see innovation? How things kind of that they can be just kind of a reflection of what's happening in society? And uh, oh, absolutely. And this is a. Um you know, this is a subject that people have studied and I, I have a book, I can't remember what it's called, but it's basically about that, about how you can trace um, how horror, you know, almost more than any other genre changes with what's happening in the world. You know, um, you know, for instance, like, you know, Night of the Living Dead came out, um, you know, right around the Vietnam era. And, you know, that uh, this book had something to say about that, you know, but like, um, you know, after 9-11, there was this real, uh, there was a, a trend of, um, you know, horror in that dealt with people in like foreign countries. So movies like Hostel where, mm. you know, these, you know, people are in this, you know, and the, and the, you know, the bad people were these like strange foreigners, you know, and that was sort of the post of nine 11 trend in horror. So yeah, there's definitely like, you know, people study that a lot. Oh, you live in such a beautiful time right now to make really great horror movies. <laughs> I mean, everything is, is, uh, you have the perfect storm in front of you. Oh yeah, for sure. And, you know, and yeah, like, I mean, you know, look at, um, you know, isn't there like a, and like the purge, you know, I think there, there's definitely films that like reflect the Trump era, you know, and, um, things like that, you know? Yeah, I, I'm. I, I don't really. It, it's funny because I'm a musician. I'm not a filmmaker. You're both. So, as Dad's Tebow's point, like, you know, every everyone in music in alternative music is like, oh, this is a great time for for music because we have something to scream about. It's it's akin to the Reagan era, 
um, where punks had something to scream about. And, and in my head, you know, the, the movies I'm thinking during the Reagan era that stick out are like Repo Man. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the, there, they made another Living Dead movie where the cover, I remember the cover more than the movie. It was a, it was a tombstone with a bunch of skeletons with mohawks. Dude, Return of the Living Dead the with, living the, dead. with the punk rockers. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, I mean, I, my favorite, that's my favorite zombie movie, um, but also, you know, one of my favorite horror movies and also one of my favorite movies. Oh, awesome. <laughs> Uh, I love that film. <laughs> but, you know, the Reagan era also had, you know, we had, you know, massive, you know, propaganda films, you know, like um, Red Dawn and uh, and Rocky IV and, yeah. and things like that. I, I remember I had this Russian friend. We worked construction together and we were talking one day and I asked him, I said, growing up, he, he actually grew up in uh, Belarus. And I said, growing up in Belarus, did you guys have... Um, propaganda films and he said he's like what is that and I said well we had these you know movies that you know were all about how Russia was bad you know like Red Dawn and Rocky Four. and he goes these are good movies and then he said um, and he goes you know but the Rocky Four, the thing with the uh, the guy he's training and there are all these machines and computers and stuff we did not have these things in Russia <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was funny. Maybe it's just because he doesn't fight at an elite level. Maybe he's used to training like Rocky did in that movie out in the woods. Yeah, which was that that was that was like the irony of it is that you know it was really probably the opposite. You know, like somebody in Russia (laughs) is like is like chopping wood and dragging logs through the snow, and you know, a fighter in America, Sylvester Stallone, was like taking steroids and you know like everything. (laughs) You know, it was the total, it's so funny how they try to sell it as like, you know, American, good old American know-how and, you know, but like, you know, Russians are rough people, you know? I've been there twice. That movie is a hundred percent factual. No, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) I love the movie though. I mean, it's dumb, but I mean, it's, it's really dumb, but you know, if you haven't listened to the Rocky four soundtrack in a while, uh, give it a spin. It's one of the greatest collections of music that ever existed. Oh, God. I, I don't even, I don't know what's on it, but go there ahead, go. We live in such it. a strange world where media and reality are kind of meshed into one. And it's difficult to distinguish, you know, what is the truth from what is fabricated, what, what is theatrical from what is real. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, as a filmmaker, as you see this kind of, dance happening like where do you see your place in kind of creating your own vision where do i see my place um that is a very interesting question um you know i mean some of the films that i want to make um there's one in particular sort of my dream project is a film that i wrote about uh, it's all true stories of pe- my friends and people that I knew growing up in, in Memphis in the 90s and all the crazy stuff that we got into. And I talked about some of it earlier about how, you know, a lot of kids I grew up with didn't make it. And and we were doing abs- absurd things. Like, um, you know, like I said earlier, like I tell people these stories and they just like, 
don't believe it. They're like, that's ridiculous. There's no way that you did that at 16. And I'm like, like what? Um, uh, we, God, I don't, you know, um, <laughs> I don't know <laughs> some things. I don't know if there's like a statute of limitations. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I should say it here, but, um, uh, hey, hypothetically you did. <laughs> right. Um, what would the character do the fictional character do in this <laughs> fictional movie? Um, I, I just, I like, all, all I want to, all I'll say is that like, you know, one of my great friends, um, at the time, um, had to do, we did this thing and my friend had to like, and, and, and like, uh, just as a disclaimer, you know, we didn't like hurt anybody. It wasn't a crime where we, you know, against a person, um, but one of my friends had to like go on the run for at 16 and was lived out on the road, uh, you know, for two years until he turned 18. And I don't remember how it all got glossed over, but, um, but there were friends, you know, I mean, I had friends that were, you know, murdered and, you know, drug deals gone wrong and, um, you know, overdoses and suicides and a lot of, you know, really sort of terrible, like violent things. And, there were all these people that I loved that, you know, like I was saying earlier, uh, didn't have a focus and didn't. And so they sort of succumbed to addiction and things like that. And it's very important to me to tell those stories. I, I want to, I want to tell their stories and, um, you know, it, the film would be, if I could make it, it would be similar to like, um, you know, kids or, you know, Requiem for a dream or, um, something like that. And, um, you know, I, I just think it's important to tell those stories if, if anything is a cautionary tale, mm -hmm. you know, I think cause you know, we did a lot of stupid stuff and, um, I certainly don't want to glorify it. I want to just tell the reality of like what happens when you live like that. Well, I was going to say, unfortunately <clears throat> these days, anything like that, a cautionary tale, nine times out of 10, it gets glorified because people don't have the same experiences these days that we did back then. Right. You know, so they're just like, Whoa, you got, that's so cool. It's like, no, no, it's, it's, it's cool watching it happen, but it's right. not cool when it's happening. You know, it's, it's um, the stories are interesting um, because the stakes are high, you know, and that's what makes to me, that's what makes an interesting story. You know, what makes really, uh, um, heavy drama is when the stakes are high, you know? And so it's definitely interesting to watch. Um, but yeah, it's not, um, it's, it's not cool. And, you know, so that definitely like, that's what I, what I want at, at least, you know, that's my, my end goal is to be able to make that film. And then, you know, I have other films that are, that do have things to say about, you know, different, uh, you know, different topics that are important now, you know, so I, so I do weave my values into stories, um, you know, just, just like I did, you know, even, you know, the movie we were talking about earlier, Slaughterhouse Five, like it was, um, you know, it was, you know, people were like disturbed by it, you know, but I was, uh, it, it was really when I was making that movie, you know, it, it was, it was 
partially based on somebody that I knew that had a similar experience to that. And as I was making it, I would meet people who would tell, who would share their stories that were similar. And so, you know, that's a real problem. Um, you know, sexual assault, um, you know, on college campuses and things like that. And so, you know, I think that, you know, is an important, you know, thing to talk about. Yeah. And murderous rage. I mean, it is a feeling. Uh, yeah. Doesn't mean uh, you <laughs> were proning acting it out, but the feeling in itself is completely legitimate. Right. And, you know, and that goes and, and, you know, and that, and, you know, cause you want to, you know, when, when, you know, you want to get revenge, you know, when somebody you love gets hurt like that, or, you know, when, you know, if, if somebody themselves gets hurt like that, you know, you want to, you know, you want to, you get, you know, you want to kill people, you know? And so it's sort of this like outlet of, you know, this sort of like, what if creating this what if scenario, you know? Absolutely. In a, in a world of no consequences or the ultimate consequence, right? Mm-hmm. What would you do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so to now, slowly wrap oh, things up, I'm wondering, Christian. No, I got way more, man. Oh, well then. I got way more. <laughs> Sorry, Holmes. I got well, way more. I'm going to still ask my question. How do you kind of, throughout your whole, you know, your whole story, how do you find this kind of mental health, this kind of stability between, you know, stress over things that you want to get in the future that you're not where you want to be. And yet you're here mm-hmm. right now doing the things that are important to you. Mm-hmm. So where do you, how do how I do you, find how, mental yeah, health? Yeah. How do you find that kind of, yeah. Uh, my mental health is a precarious balancing act um, at all times. And um you know, I was just talking to somebody about it last night about how, um, you know, it's, it's, it's constant work of, um, you know, and, and everything is about balance and, and, you know, I, I do tend to sometimes get, you know, obsessed with the work and obsessed in the, in the film industry. And sometimes I make, um, decisions, you know, for instance, I was a production designer on a feature film that shot in November and it was a terrible experience. The, um, director was somebody I had known for years and I ignored all the red flags that they were a totally total narcissist. And it was one of the worst experiences of my life. And I had to take a look at, you know, what I've learned in because I've dealt with several narcissists through my life. And the thing that I've learned is that it doesn't make any sense. It never makes sense to try to get into the head of a narcissist. What you have to do is you have to say, what is it about me that made me feel like I needed that person in my life that I needed to be there when I saw all these red flags? And, you know, for me in that, in that instance, it was this you know, hunger to exist in this industry and to, to climb this ladder in this industry. And I was like, okay, well, you know, I know it's going to be hard. It's going to be a lot of work and there's not a lot enough resources. Um, but you know, if I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a production designer on this feature film, it's going to help me in the future in my career. And I had to take a hard look at, um, you know, that way of thinking and, and realize that, um, you know, even though I'm very hungry, 
for a place in this industry, I also cannot allow myself to be treated badly. And I have to say no um, to, you know, being, to being abused and being taken advantage of. Um, so that was a really, you know, that was a really hard lesson. Um, yeah. So that it took a huge toll on me. I mean, it, when that movie was, oh, I mean, I'm still not over it. I'm still, mm. I still talk about it every day. Uh, it was very traumatic. Um, I still have PTSD from it. And, you know, so I'm still like trying to heal from it, you know, and, um, you know, and, and so, yeah, like my mental health is just, I have to, there's this balance between, you know, work and, and relaxation and, and, you know, eating right and, and, you know, taking care of yourself. Hello. Oh, um, taking care of yourself, uh, physically and, you know, mentally and, you know, all the things, you know, it's like, I have to have all the things in place to balance this, uh, my precarious mental health. But then how does the guilt of sitting down and watching WandaVision and eating Chinese food fit into this? It's, it's this cycle, you know, you, uh, I, 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 I work myself. Um, I burn the candle at both ends until I get burnt out. And then I, you know, take a month off and I order Chinese food every night and I watch and I binge watch, you know, dumb TV shows. And then, after a certain amount of time that that nagging guilt gets to me and then I get up off the couch and I go to the computer and I start working on a screenplay or, you know, working on a song I'm writing or um, any of the other, you know, all, all the other hundreds of projects that I'd like to take on at one time. <laughs> so you're more like well, the seasons rather than the weather. <laughs> it's long-term right. processes. <laughs> Yeah. So I, I feel I feel bad because that would have been a great way to end this, but I honestly feel like we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the music videos you directed. Because I mean I want to know to you what makes a song or a video stand out. Because in those I listen to Memphis videos, mm-hmm. you got the Cedric Burnside Wash My Hands. Uh, video which has over a hundred thousand views mm-hmm. about the Negro Terror Voice of Memphis, which has almost four million views. Yeah, yet the Pez video with the highest views I could find was forty five hundred. <laughs> yeah. So so how how do you? Well, first off, I, I'm assuming that the Negro Terror video is the most viewed thing you've ever made. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, and those dudes are, you know, um, unfortunately the singer Omar passed away, um, you know, within, uh, a year of making that video. Um, but you know, those dudes were really like doing something special and they were on to something and, you know, um, you know, that, that video is, a um, they're covering screwdriver um, I don't know if you noticed that. I did not. <laughs> yeah. So they're covering a screwdriver song. Um, I think it was uh, called uh, the, the original song was called voice of Britain and, um, and they, they turned it into voice of Memphis. Memphis. Yeah. And so they're really trolling the white supremacists. And so, you know, that's been a very interesting experience. And um, for a while we disabled the comments because, you know, we were getting a lot of, um, you know, 88s and a lot of, uh, you know, the, uh, overwhelmingly 
uh, positive responses to it. People love it. And then, but, you know, there's also, you know, uh, white supremacist boneheads ch uh, chiming in on it, you know? Um, so, you know, Negro Terror really had this, you know, something very, you know, special to offer and that people really identified with and loved, you know? So that's why that one went so huge. And of course, you know, I mean, Cedric Burnside, you know, he's a, you know, comes from a legendary blues family and I'm assuming um, he's related to RL Burnside. Yeah. He's his uh, yeah. grandson. Okay. Um, and a, and a, a great guy and, and, you know, is really carrying the torch of that, you know, Hill country blues, um, that, you know, RL was the, you know, was the king of the, uh, Hill country blues. So, um, you know, I was honored to, to do that. And that, that whole project, all those videos, that was a, um, that was something I got hired on, um, through this, uh, there's a radio show called Beale street caravan and they've been around for 20 something years and they, you know, they broadcast on like, um, sort of like public radio stations and stuff, but, um, they would record like live music from Memphis and uh and they have the and they play it on stations all over the world so you know this this sort of radio show plays on like 400 stations around the world and you know wow. countries like Ireland and all over Europe and so they were looking for you know they wanted to make a visual accompaniment to the radio show they said well you know people are hearing all these uh Memphis artists and um you know, and, and hearing like, oh, you know, you know, Cedric Burnside's playing at this place. Um, but we wanted to see that, you know, and they wanted mm -hmm. to have this sort of uh, visual companion. And so um, that was a job that I applied for, you know, right when I had moved back from New Orleans. And it was a, it was a blessing. I mean, getting that job saved my life. I was going through such a terrible depression and had a, a really bad experience in New Orleans. And, and, um, you know, sort of came back to Memphis, sort of defeated, and and um, it didn't take long for me to, you know, I I just sort of submitted. I saw they were hiring for that job as a director, and I sort of submitted my past work and gave a proposal of like what I thought that project should be like, and I got the job. and And like I said, that you know that that really saved my life. It gave me a focus, and um, it allowed me to fall in love with Memphis again because. Uh, Memphians are the eternal underdogs. We're always, uh, even our own shit, you know, we're not, um, you know, we're used to the whole country sort of, you know, looking down on us as this like backwoods, you know, backwards, um, you know, Southern town, but man, so much of what is, um, great about popular culture came out of Memphis, you know, absolutely. Um, Elvis Presley, Sun Studios. Oh my God. It's like, it, it goes, uh, I mean, you can just go on and on, you know, for days about it. And even, you know, and even like these hidden gems, you know, like, um, you know, I talk all the time about like, you know, I can go to the grocery store and, um, you know, run into Jim Dandy from Black Oak, Arkansas, who, I mean, you know, they like, you know, they, they really, inf they were this weird band that, you know, a, a lot of people loved, but they never achieved this like real success. But like everything that like Van David Lee Roth was doing, he stole from Jim Dandy. And they were this hugely 
you know, influential band that in the seventies, you know, Leonard Skinner was opening up for them, you know, and, and so, and so, you know, you can go to the grocery store and here's this guy who, you know, here's this guy who changed the face of popular music or, you know, also, as I like to say, you know, if you're under a certain age, uh, you were conceived to an Al Green record. Um, (laughs) So, you know, there's, you know, everybody has a little, has a little, bit of memphis music in them you know that's a, so that's that, good analogy that, yeah so doing that project allowed me to like fall in <laughs> love with memphis again and that was that was a really great project and i was really proud to be able to capture that negro terror video before you know omar passed away and i'm really stoked at how much how, how people respond to it and how many people have watched it yeah i can imagine four million is a lot Yep. Um, you know, as far as like what you said about the the Pez video not getting a lot of hits, um, you know, we were just I I don't I think people just didn't really know where to put us, and you know, we were not, um, you know, we weren't like you know good looking cool guys from California. You know, we were just like we were more interested in cultivating songs and trying to be honest than trying to cultivate an image, which I think as much as I, as we hate to admit it, you know, that's a big part of, um, you know, being successful. And, um, you know, of course we get a lot of hate from, uh, fans of the Canadian Pez. Fucking Billy talent. What a <laughs> like they're all like, you can't, you know, if you, if you look up Pez, same spelling as us you can't you know you like all their stuff comes up and they just have millions and millions of hits and actually when i looked it up today i uh, i liked your rough draft better was the very first one oh great and then the next like page and a half was all them right which is uh you know a bummer they they issued us a cease and desist on the name in the 90s and we just all we had to do was just prove that we had been around longer and then they had to suck it and they changed their name (laughs) then they got huge you know and um uh and so you know their fans they love you know their fans love to chime in on and make comments on our stuff and go like this isn't the pez that anyone wants to hear you know what's the expression opinions are like assholes everyone has one well and also that you know there was this wikipedia war going on for a while to where we don't have a wikipedia page because of that because you know, people, you know, the, the narrative that all of their fans heard was, um, yeah, Pez, um, you know, got sued by a Memphis band and had to change their name, which was totally the opposite. And so we would go in there and correct the Wikipedia page and go, you know, this is what really happened. They issued us a cease and desist. And we just proved that we had been around longer and we had international releases and then they had to change their name, you know, um, and it was just as simple as that, but you know the narrative is is that we sued them, so that's fun. And so yeah, we don't have, you know, uh, we're a band that's been around, you know, thirty plus years and don't have a Wikipedia page. So whatever. I, I agree. Whatever, man. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. Um. So now we'll wrap it up, but I have one last question. Okay. Uh, the name of your production company is Best Revenge, and is it a reference to the George Herbert quote, "Living well is the best revenge"? Um, it is sort of. Yeah, it's it's a reference to yes, it's a reference to that idea 
Um, I didn't really know, I guess when I, when I thought of the name, I, I miss remembered the quote and I thought it was that success is the best revenge, which is a similar idea. Um, and, um, you know, there's a quote, uh, there's something that Henry Rollins said, and he says, he said, work is vengeance and I'm always working. Um, <laughs> and did, he I, and, it, did he say it in that tone? Oh yeah. He said it in an <laughs> even better tone than that. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So the, the idea of, uh, best revenge pictures was, you know, the idea of, the the thing that um, I respond to, I respond to negative criticism way more than I do um, positive affirmation. So the thing that always burned in me was, you know, for, uh, being young and growing up and, you know, going to this, you know, the school with the jocks and being the un, the nerdy kid and getting bullied and, and having like parents and teachers, you know, like, you're never going to be anything. You're never going to do anything. You're stupid. Like, what are you going to, you, you're going to like make art for a living. Yeah. Right. Like wake up and get a real job. And, um, and, you know, you know, terrible, uh, romantic partners that, you know, we're the same way. Like, um, sorry, I keep uh, hitting something and I can't hear myself. Um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, I dated people that were the same way. It was like, you know, you're you're foolish, you're dumb. The things that you want, you're not going to get. And that um, that's what burns in me and pushes me to try harder. Is that uh, is I hear every every voice of every person that that told me I was not going to that I was never going to do anything. And, and so this is my, you know, my, my creativity is my revenge. Honestly, man, I, I think it stems from a jealousy issue and people who don't live honestly, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's a, there's a freedom in being able to say, I don't want kids. I want to pursue my artistic dreams and I have nothing against people with kids. I think it's great. Timo yeah. has a kid. His yeah. kid is awesome. I love his kid. Albert, he rules. He just turned five and a half yesterday. Like he's adorable. He's awesome. But I, I just feel the, the 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 hate that you're receiving is just from people who don't have the guts to follow what they truly want. Yeah. Or they don't know and they're too afraid to try and find out. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and um, and, you know, a lot of those people are, uh, you know, they might be well-meaning, you know, they might be, they might be think that they're trying, they, they might think that they're trying to help, you know, and, and saying like, you need to be more reasonable, you know, but I mean, you know, I look at my, uh, you know, I look at my parents and, and, you know, they never, uh, you know, they never pursued what they, they love. They never like gave themselves a chance to f- even figure out like what, what their true North was and go after it. And, you know, that's why they ended up like hating each other and like being unhappy with their lives. Cause they just did the thing that they thought was ex- expected of them, you know, mm-hmm. and they didn't, uh, it takes a lot of courage to, you know, break yourself down and, and figure out, um, you know, what it is that you want and then, and then make the decision to, you know, go for it and, and, you know, to not have a plan B, you know, just like, just hammer away at it, you know, and sometimes it's, it's exhausting, but, you know, every once in a while I, I like to look back and, 
you know, I'll get frustrated. And then I look back at all the things that I have done and, you know, maybe uh, a lot of it, you know, no one will ever see, but man, it sure was fun doing it, you know? <laughs> That's a beautiful line. Eh? My creativity is my best revenge. <laughs> I mean, it's a pretty powerful line uh, because you know you're creating you're you're creating art and that's how you're healing from all you know the criticism and all the violence and all the through making art being creative yeah i mean you know i just think about all those people that like you know were nasty to me and hated on me and you know i think about you know what my you know my first evil ex and and you know she's like a a lawyer or something and you know she's probably miserable and hates her life and you know i'm out you know in in the middle of nowhere in mississippi working on a you know abc tv show and getting paid really well and hanging out with a bunch of cool people doing weird stuff you know <laughs> It's never boring. And that, that's, that's one thing that's great. It's never boring. And I, you know, I was lucky enough to, or I, I, you know, I, I just, I learned to do a lot of different things. I wear a lot of different hats. So I am able to uh, work as a production designer or in the art department or, you know, as a set builder or as a um, special effects guy or, you know, as a director, you know. And um, so I was able to diversify so I can always work. And that's essentially if you want to follow your artistic pursuit and it doesn't pan out to a, a million dollars annually, mm-hmm. you need to be able to be adaptable and cover your ass. Yeah. You know, I get that. Yeah. And it's admirable. I like it. I respect the hell out of you, Christian. Thank you. Um, yeah. Thank you. Th- yeah. Thank, thank you, you for so. being so generous in this, uh, this talk. Yeah. Uh, uh, this is really fun. I've really, I've really enjoyed it. Um, I love talking about art. Us too. Yeah. yeah. And I like, uh, I like talking to you guys. Uh, <laughs> I wish, I wish we could do this more often. Well, we can, you know, where is technology? It allows us to, to, to connect. Mm-hmm. I talked to you what for an hour last week. Yeah. For a, it was a, we no, talked for a that, while. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, And that's what blows my mind, you know, and I'm thinking about this pandemic. If it happened 10 years ago, I mean, we would have been severely, I would have been severely uh, hurt by it. But -hmm. just even, you know, I can't believe all the things that happened to me through this pandemic. And for the longest time, I had a radio show, what, in the 1999 up to 2005 or so. For the longest time, I wanted to do interviews again and... But I didn't have the time. And it's, mm-hmm. it happened now where Chris brought up the idea. It's like, wait, there's Zoom. We have everything now. We don't even have to. I don't even have to go over to Chris's house or he has to come over here. We can all do it. Like my son's asleep. I'm mm-hmm. doing an interview. The Squarespace does the website. I don't even have to pay someone to make a website. Uh, we have Gus who does all our art. I mean, it's incredible how things can kind of be pieced together. He's in Brazil, uh, and we're You're all doing in Memphis, this. Christian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's um, yeah, it's really fun. I, I, I've been doing a podcast for about two years now, and um, uh, it's uh, yeah, it's really uh, 
it's really cool, you know, and I love these. Uh, I mean, I listen to them all the time, you know. Same here. Um, and I, I listen to these, you know, it's really cool to listen to these like long form conversations. And um, and it's something that's, you know, very, uh, you know, it's uh, easy to do. We have the tools and we can still, you know, do it in the middle of this pandemic. And I finally, you know, I finally kind of broke through the, you know, I was really depressed um, in the beginning of it, you know, and, and where I'm at now is that like, you know, there's a whole lot of things that you can still work on, you know, you can still like work on yourself physically, you can still like write and make art and, you know, and and in some ways, you know, it may increase your focus and it may even be a blessing and you may even, you know, like, like you guys may never have decided to do this had it not been for the pandemic. And so, absolutely not. Yeah. So in some ways it's a, it's a blessing. You tour stories was actually my first podcast that I was ever on. Nice. So, and that was what, that was, early, I was gonna say earlier this year. Cause it feels like it's only, it's been a year since the pandemic, but it was spring of last year, I think. Yeah, I don't remember. You, yours was the first one that we did via Zoom. We we were um, we were really trying to do them all in person, which was really fun. Um, yeah, for sure. You know, now we've sort of gotten the Zoom thing down to a science, and um, and it and it it allowed us to you know branch out and reach people far away, which has been really good for us. If I can give you a piece of advice, yes, contact Jesse Gander. He's a great, great person to talk to via Zoom. Jesse Gander? Singer for DBS. Oh, yeah. I would love love to. Yeah. Yeah, and he'd be uh, totally into it. And uh, he's uh, he's a good talker. He's got some great tour stories. Yeah. yeah um, I'll put him on the list for sure. I get, you know, it grows more every day. And, um, you know, it, it was unfortunate that we, that, um, I thought I thought of the idea, and there was like already a. There was one that started like not long before us, called that one time on tour that one of the guys from the Ataris does, and, um, and then there was one that was started after us. But, uh, so there's a few tour story podcasts out there, but doesn't matter, man. There's everybody's doing. How can I put this? Everybody's doing something. So there's yes. bound to be an overlap. Oh, for sure. For sure. 